Welcome to Reasonable Doubts, your skeptical guide to religion. Welcome to Reasonable Doubts, the radio show and podcast for those who won't just take things on faith. Coming to you from Grand Rapids, Michigan, the clasp on America's Bible bra. You can find us online at www.doubtcast.org, or those of you in West Michigan can listen to us on Public Reality Radio, WPRR, Ada, Grand Rapids, and W237CZ, Hudsonville. My name is Dave Fletcher, and with me here in the studio is my fellow Doubtcaster, Jeremy Bean. Hello, everyone. And, of course, we should mention that Dr. Professor Luke Galen is out sick today. That's right. Even he is entitled to a sick day every once in a while. Yep. Today, we begin a series on Buddhism. Uh, we have coming up an interview with Stephen Batchelor. Yes, Stephen Batchelor was a monk in the Tibetan tradition. He was trained in India by monks within the Dalai Lama's inner circle. But over time, he began to become skeptical of some of the ideas and doctrines within Buddhism, and he's written about it in his new book, Confession of a Buddhist Atheist, which has a nice blurb from Christopher Hitchens. Appeal to authority, thank you. <laughs> Christopher Hitchens says, The human thirst for the transcendent, the numinous, even the ecstatic, is too universal and too important to be entrusted to the cultish and the archaic and the superstitious. In this honest and serious book about self-examination and critical scrutiny, Stephen Batchelor adds the universe of Buddhism to the many fields in which received truth and blind faith are now giving way to ethical and scientific humanism, in which lies our only real hope. Stephen Batchelor's confession is a confession to his Buddhist audience. He is confessing the things in Buddhism that he doubts. And I wanted to start off the show with a little confession of my own, just so I'm completely open at the beginning about where I'm coming from right. when approaching this, this Buddhism material. I have more than a passing curiosity about Buddhism. Even as an atheist, uh, I have attended Buddhist sanghas off and on for several years. I meditate regularly, or at least I used to meditate regularly. I still do from time to time. What are you, Sam Harris? <laughs> I tried to get him for the show, actually, but he didn't want to come on. Hmm. So I have a deep interest in Buddhism. I, of course, am thoroughly naturalistic in my worldview. I'm not really interested in any of the Buddhist metaphysics. My interest in Buddhism is it's akin to when skeptics go back and get curious about Democritus or hmm. Epicurus. Sure. In a culture that's so saturated with theism, Right. and Christian concepts, it's it's very easy to quickly feel like you're a stranger in your own culture, mm -hmm. that you lack a heritage. And so quite often skeptics go back through history, even ancient history, wondering, was there ever a time when people thought like I did? Um, so that we can we can see what they said and we can see uh, how how they thought they should live their lives in the light of those ideas. And so that has been very much uh, where I've been coming from in my, my interest in Buddhism. A lot of the, uh, the baggage in Western thought uh, that, that's a holdover from Christianity, so the idea of a supreme being, 
that everything has a purpose, mm-hmm. the idea of revelation uh, and truth by authority or sin, the idea of souls and free will. It's things that are really taken for granted in Western culture. Right. At least the earliest forms of Buddhism are remarkably free of a lot of that baggage. Now, of course, it has a whole lot of baggage of its own of course, that it, yep. it received from, from ancient Indian cosmology, from Hindu cosmology. Right. And that's important to point out. But in this first part of the series, I want to take a look at aspects of the Buddha's view of the world that, that I believe actually fit a naturalistic view quite well. Because there's a lot of really appealing things in Buddhism to a a naturalist. Right. That's why I think a lot of atheist attitudes towards Buddhism tend to be a bit more warm yes, very, than they would very be gentle. towards yeah. other, other religions. Right. And so for people who are puzzled by that, maybe they'll get a sense mm-hmm. uh, of why that is from listening to these episodes. So this first episode is just focusing on what was the Buddha's view of the world and what aspects of it fit well with the naturalistic worldview. In the second part of the series, we're going to take a closer look at Buddhist ethics. In the light of these ideas, how did the Buddha think people should live their lives? And we'll ask the question, is, is there any empirical support to that? The third part of the series will be a reality check. Right recognizing that Buddhism is, is more than just a philosophy, it's, it's a religion. Mm-hmm. The third part will be a very skeptical look at the doctrines of Buddhism. I think to get an appreciation of just how radical the doctrines of early Buddhism are, it's good to get a sense of the, of the culture and the times that the Buddha lived in. Mm-hmm. Siddhartha Gautama, the Buddha, of course, is a title. It means the awakened one. Gautama lived his life in the 6th century BCE, so he was a rough contemporary with the Socratic philosophers. Right. He is also around at the time uh, that is the beginning, uh, the formative era of what would become classical Hinduism. Uh, so he lived in a time of very dramatic social, cultural, and religious change. The, the system that was in, in place at that time uh, was, was the Vedic religion, uh, re, the religion that was based off of the Hindu Vedas. Right. We're looking at the religion that existed before the Upanishads. The Upanishads are very important. They change Hindu belief radically. But the system that was in place before that, the Vedic religion, some have characterized it as kind of a cosmic maintenance religion. <laughs> Sure. Uh, it's 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 mostly focused on ritual. Yes. Um, As most early uh, religions were. That's true. This yeah. is it, this isn't all that different from early Judaism. Judaism begins as almost entirely focused on what the right rituals, sacrifices, and everything else are. It's not until the time of the prophets that Judaism becomes more focused on about the, b- belief and and that sort of mm-hmm. thing. And, and that's true of really all of the religions that you're going to run into in uh, throughout Europe as well. I mean, uh, um, Norse cultures, um, the Celts, all of these people. It, it was more about the practices than it was about the beliefs. Yeah, some scholars like to talk of the Axial Age. Yes, uh, being this this time that uh, across you know from ancient Greece to uh, to the Hebrews, to Chinese culture, and in India, this time where religion seemed to be evolving more out of just a ritual focus mm-hmm. and something more personally oriented, asking personal questions about your salvation, your life, your own ethical duties, not just so focused on 
ritual. Because, of course, that's not a terribly fulfilling religion. In not at all. Yeah. And, a, and a lot of people at the time of the Buddha had angst towards the Vedic system. Sure. Now, the Vedic uh, system was based on, uh, of course, the Vedas. The, right. the Vedas were, they were orally transmitted. It was an yes. oral tradition. Mm -hmm. Eventually, it was written down. The Vedas were mostly incantations, spells, mm -hmm. yes. hymns, that sort of thing. And it was believed that the, the Vedas were ultimate truth. Yes. Truth that was actually pre-existed even the gods. This is access to capital T truth. Yes. It was believed that you, you had to recite them absolutely correctly. Right. If you got a single syllable wrong, you know, you could mess things up because the Vedas had power over reality. Even the gods would suffer if you screwed up the uh, incantation. Absolutely. Yeah. Fire sacrifices, mm -hmm. um, reciting the Vedas. It was thought that the gods depended on these. It was necessary to keep the, the kind of orderly cosmos going. Yes. Uh, that's why I said cosmic maintenance. <laughs> Basically, you're just going through the motions, uh, say what you need to say, do the sacrifices right. so that the gods can keep things going. Yep. Um, but that meant those who were in control of the Vedas had control over people's lives, over people's welfare, mm -hmm. over the very welfare of the gods and, and the cosmos itself. And so it's not hard to understand why this, uh, why this caste system Yes. Of the Vedic religion and then which became part of Hinduism mm -hmm. um, was so deeply entrenched in that society. The Brahmins were the priestly caste. They were at the top and they were the ones that were charged um, with keeping the Vedas. It, it was thought that this was so important that we can't just leave it up to anybody. There has to be a special class of people. It's like Catholicism. <laughs> in a sense, only in, in, in the case of the Brahmins, of course, right, they, they were born into it. Right. At this point, there's very little social mobility. You are what you are. You ain't going anywhere. So, of course, there were many people then who were not content with their lot in life. And Especially the slave caste, I'm guessing. Yeah, absolutely. Many people started dropping out of Aryan society. So the Buddha lived in a time of, of spiritual rebellion. And this was coming from many different quarters. People were renouncing society, shaving their head, mm -hmm. getting rid of all different marks of caste and wandering off in the woods. And it was seen as kind of a protest. Uh, in this way, you're not supporting the caste system. You are not supporting these uh, – you're not supporting the economy. If you're not a householder, right. you're not earning a wage. You're not paying for the sacrifices. You're living off the grid basically. Right. And so in the wilderness of ancient India, uh, many of these, these – Sages, renunciants, whatever you want to call them, mm -hmm. ascetics, they began kind of contemplating different attitudes towards the world. Yes. Some of these people were actually skeptics. There were teachers who were materialists mm -hmm. and they believed that because we're all material, we're just the elements. When we die, nothing happens. We return to the elements. They then stressed, you know, it's important to live a life where you try to find what satisfaction you can in, in this life. And it's never going to catch on. <laughs> uh, there were skeptics who didn't believe in this capital T truth mm -hmm. and uh, not all that different from the, the skeptics and the cynics of, of ancient Greece right. came to believe that there is peace of mind in, in acknowledging what you can't know mm -hmm. and staying out of the constant debates and everything else, uh, just fostering whatever would bring about a, a life more free from suffering. There was a spiritual wing to this as well. The spiritual side comes with the Upanishads, 
Yes. Uh, or rather, it, I guess it, it becomes uh, recorded then in the Upanishads. There was a higher reality, that of, of Brahma. Mm-hmm. Now, Brahma is different from Brahmin. Uh, just don't get those confused. Brahma is, uh, is, is a kind of ultimate reality. Um, sometimes it's personified in Hinduism, you know, given the name of gods or sacred geometries, that sort of thing. Right. To many of these sages, it was something that you couldn't, you completely could not understand using language or terms or yeah. concepts. Um, but but the closest analog we have to it is is the idea of a supreme being or a god. Yeah, well, although it's a more pervasive element than that, uh, generally speaking in Hinduism, um, Brahma is not given a a personality like you know a monotheistic god would. It's it's the force without the metachlorians. Yeah. Okay. It's this this thing that binds everything together. There's um, the analogy of the the salt in the water. You know, you put a lump of salt in the water, it dissolves. But if you drink the water, it's still salty. The salt is there. It, it's it's right. inescapable. It's a part of everything. You, me, this tree, all of it is part exactly. of Brahma. Yeah. No, that you're absolutely right. There's Nirgana. There's Brahma without qualities. Is mm-hmm. what you're yes. talking yeah, about. Yeah. Exactly. Um, there, there's the other side th- that is Brahma with qualities, where mm-hmm. it's it's a limited, mistaken view. Since you can't ever capture Brahma, right. human beings have to limit Brahma into thinking of it like a god. Even by using analogy yeah. is is that limited Brahma because we can't – language right. can't possibly describe it because it is everything. Right. And that's so, the yeah. Brahma without quality. So we are – we're talking – you're absolutely right. We're talking about two aspects of the same yes. thing, how they would have seen well, it. Well, to describe the Brahma – Without qualities, you have to actually describe the Brahma with qualities because that's you, the only way. You yeah, can it's the only way it. you can do it. Yeah, yeah. But it was thought that you could find union with that that ultimate reality mm-hmm. um, through recognizing your true self or your true soul. Right. And here's where the idea of Atman comes from. Atman comes from Brahma, and every living thing shares in Atman. Has this this truest essence, this pure reality or, or true soul, mm-hmm. often called the true self. Right. Everybody shares in this. And so uh, it gets clouded over by all our particular ideas about who we are and, and our, you know, whatever the particular facts of our lives are. And that obscures us from seeing the, the true self within, which is identical with God. And that, that's where the Upanishads, that's the revolution in Hindu thought that comes with the Upanishads, is, is this idea that, that Atman and Brahman are the same thing. Yes. The truest reality and your true self are identical. And we should um, probably describe the Upanishads a little bit. Uh, what are they? The Upanishads, uh, literally, I think it means something like sitting near or yes, sitting at the yep, feet of near. the teacher. Yep. Um, they were dialogues between these – a master and a pupil. Very much like a Socratic dialogue. Yeah, in, in a yep. sense. Uh, and trying to uh, not so much teach the, teach the pupil absolute truths to believe so much as pointing towards – this reality that they need to discover for themselves. Yeah. yeah. And and they're called the Upanishads to, to sit close, not only because it's between the teacher and the student, but because they kept it between the, yes. the teacher and student. This was Good not point. given to 
um, to everyone. This was right. kept within the class of philosophers. It was kind of a private teaching. Yeah. And, and it, it, it's similar to the Vedas in some of its content. Yeah, it's very much built off of that system. Yeah, yeah. It's not – this is not a completely uh, new thing. It's built off the, the Vedic teachings in a, a new way. Yeah, it does subvert some of their ideas yeah. and uh, uh, give different interpretations of them. All of these ideas mm-hmm. are making their way through India yeah. at the time of the Buddha, especially by the time the first people are recording the earliest doctrines. The the first Buddhists would have been defining themselves in relation to and against many of these ideas. Yeah. So Gautama, uh, who is a nobleman, he ends up going off trying to search for the, the way out of suffering and ends up following a teacher who believes something very similar to what, what the sages of the Upanishads believe. Not mm-hmm. exactly. You know, time doesn't allow us to go into much detail. It's, it's a little bit different. But Gatma would have been trained to look for his true self, to try to find right. this pure essence uh, and that if you, could, if you could fully come into the light of, of that truth and realize it, then you could have union with ultimate reality mm-hmm. and not have to suffer not have to reincarnate and 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 go through this this chain of of death and rebirths that that was believed pretty widely at the time. Gatma eventually rebels against this teaching. Mm-hmm. Uh, he doesn't find it satisfactory. He doesn't think it really helps. And that's kind of a key thing in Buddhism, isn't it? Yeah, unsatisfactoriness. It's yes, about, very much so. And it's about what's useful. Right. You know? These these doctrines he believed they weren't enough to actually get him to his goal, which was yes. trying to uh, be, be free of suffering. They didn't do the job. He has very low tolerance for the Brahmins and uh, and their ideas of absolute truth. Right. Uh, in fact, he, he quite openly mocks them in the Pali Canon, which is the, uh, the earliest surviving texts that we have of the Buddhist teachings. And one is quoted and translated by Walpola Raula, uh, a Sri Lankan monk and scholar will be borrowing pretty heavily from his book, uh, What the Buddha Taught. He uses the analogy, uh, uh, talking about the the Brahmins, he says, then it's like a line of blind men, each holding on to the preceding one. The first one does not see, the middle one also does not see, the last one also does not see. The blind leading the blind, right? Yeah, exactly. So this is is a a system where ultimate truths Mm -hmm. are transmitted from one generation to the other, and you can see him rebelling against that well if the you know if the first person doesn't understand yeah. it's then, the telephone game right you know? what good does a, a lineage tracing a lineage do to try to establish the truth or the authority of some teacher right in another sutta the kalama sutta we get an even closer look at the buddha's kind of attitude towards truth because the buddha encounters these people the kalamas they've had all these the the brahmins they've had all these different sages coming into their area and debating these ideas and doctrines everybody has the absolute truth everybody else is completely wrong right and so they basically they ask the buddha you know well you're teaching something now why should we believe what you have to say yeah and his answer is what, not what you would expect typically. He, he answers, you shouldn't. 
Yes, Kalamos, it is proper for you to have doubt that you have perplexity, for a doubt has arisen in a matter which is doubtful. Uh, ju- just so you know, <laughs> if you ever do try to read the Polycanon, which I would recommend, mm-hmm. I mean, I mean, the Polycanon takes up a, a bookshelf, but a selection, an anthology, if you ever want to pick up an anthology on the Polycanon, be prepared. It's going to be repetitive. <laughs> uh, this is an oral tradition. Right. Uh, the, part of how they memorized it was these repetitions. repetitions. Yep. That is one of the... Uh, more annoying parts of studying it. <laughs> now look, you Kalamas, do not be led by reports or tradition or hearsay. Be not led by authority of religious texts, nor by mere logic and inference, nor by considering the appearances, nor by delight in speculative opinions, nor by seeming possibilities, nor by the idea, this is our teacher. But, O Kalamas, when you know for yourselves that certain things are unwholesome, and wrong and bad, then give them up. And when you know that for yourselves that certain things are wholesome and good, then accept them and follow them. What the Buddha is doing here is is actually showing quite a radical approach to truth for this time. He's taking on oral transmission. Just because you hear this being passed down, he's attacking again uh, the idea of a lineage or a tradition. Mm -hmm. Uh, The idea that truth comes from written texts or scriptures, he's dismissing as well as believing in something because you just have respect for your particular teacher. None of this is the way to wisdom uh, in the Buddha's mind. What is it? You know, how do you find these things? Through personal experience, by very closely examining your own inner life, watching what your actions lead to, and then testing it by experience and holding on to whatever seems to pass the test. And this is the kind of thing that, um, especially in Buddhism, that that free thinkers, I think, really gravitate towards and go, hey, Buddhism sounds appealing. I know when I read this, yeah. I thought, wow, he's saying find out things for yourself. You don't have to take my word for it, that sort of thing. Right. This is part of the reason why I did become so interested in it because there's a very um, – uh, using the word loosely, there's there's a, a very empirical type of attitude. Yeah, sure. Uh, especially in the earliest uh, forms of Buddhism, that you you test things, not not uh, you know not through experimentation. We're not talking scientific right. testing. That's here, why yeah. I say loosely. Right. It's this is very much done through introspection, through mm. a subjective uh, look at your own life. Right. Uh, but there is always this notion, you know, you know, go in and see for yourself. Watch experience very closely. In fact, as we'll, we'll talk about much later, um, many of the meditation practices uh, that the Buddha recommended were all about very deep introspection into what was going on in, in your own particular life. And the mm-hmm. attitude was if, if something doesn't match experience, even if it's something that is taught by the Buddha, he says that later in the Kalama Sutra, a sutta, I'm using Sanskrit and Pali, Kalama Sutta. So there isn't faith in this early kind of Buddhism in, in the sense of faith like we find in Christianity. A blind faith. Jesus extols the, the faith of the child, somebody who has a childlike faith. Yes. Who, and children just accept whatever they're told. Mm-hmm. If there is a faith in Buddhism, it's, it's supposed to be a confidence that comes out of personal experience. You, you believe in these things because you've heard them, you've examined them, and you've confirmed for yourself in your own personal life, that they are the, these things are true. They're which, they're wise, which is a bit like the quote unquote faith of a naturalist. Yes, if yeah. if you want to use that word, I mean, I, it's I still, don't. It still <laughs> grates against my sensibility. Yeah, but of course. Yes, it's, this is a a different understanding of what faith means. Yeah, 
than we're than we're typically used to. It's 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 also I mean I'm not super enthusiastic for pragmatism, but pragmatists in the secular humanist tradition really find this appealing because it it's it's very much a pragmatist yeah, approach absolutely. to truth. Yeah. Um we'll talk about this later with Stephen Batchelor, but the uh, the Buddha there's a thread going throughout many of these suttas in the Pali Canon where the Buddha just doesn't want to talk about metaphysics. Right. People start asking questions about it and and he's, you know, he says that that's not important. Uh, he takes very much a, a pragmatic approach to truth. If it works, go with it. Yeah. Uh, likewise, there's no there's no sin in this this account of of life. And and this is something that the Buddha would have shared with many of his contemporaries yeah, too. It's not distinctive to Buddhism. But the idea is that what is wrong is not is not sin. It's it's ignorance. If you don't fully understand your situation, you're going to develop false views and so your actions in life are going to be unskillful. So they'll they'll often – when you read Buddhist literature, they talk a lot more about things being unskillful or skillful than being sins necessarily. Uh, You know, whatever is useful for freeing you from suffering, that is skillful and then there are unskillful ways to go about doing that too. Mm -hmm. What is the Buddha's view of the world then? Well, if you do look deeply into your own experience, there are three insights that are supposed to follow from that kind of uh, examination. And uh, and so real quickly, here are the three. The, f- the first one is impermanence. Mm-hmm. The second one is unsatisfactoriness. And then the third one, the word is anatta. It's sometimes translated no soul or no self or sometimes not self. Hmm. And we'll we'll talk about what that means in a moment. First of all, impermanence. Uh, nothing is stable. Nothing has an eternal existence. And, and this mean, this is from human beings to even the gods themselves is temporary. It's not going to last. Uh, another way of saying this is that anything that is is an aggregate, anything that is an assemblage yeah. of parts, is going to break down. Mm-hmm. And the early Buddhist view is that everything is just an assemblage of mm-hmm. aggregates. Real quickly, a side note, I said even the gods. In these early Buddhist texts, there is mention of several Hindu deities. Right. But the uh, the attitude them, to them is is very much like the Epicureans. Um, it's, it's just really no use. It's of no use to us to worry about them or be concerned about them right. at all. When the gods are talked about, many of the passages are kind of teasing and we get this sense that they, they too are temporary beings just like us. They too – suffer. Um, it's just sometimes because they're in this godly position, they don't even realize it. You know, they're they're kind of, in a strange sense, you'd almost want to be a human being more than a god because gods have a lot of barriers to recognizing uh, th- their own suffering and recognizing the truth. So it's not really atheism. Uh, it, Buddhism is, is often uh, referred to as an atheistic religion, but it's really not, at least in, in the early passages here, there's an acknowledgement of the gods, kind of, but they're, they're, they're gods that don't matter. They're gods yeah. that, it, they if they exist. At certain times for examples. Right, um, right. You know, even Socrates talks about different Greek gods yeah, to yeah, use definitely. as examples. Uh, and, and really the commitment to these gods is, is no more than that. Right. Um, and in fact, According to some interpretations of Buddhism, that these these gods are ultimately just manifestations of aspects of the human mind. Hmm. Uh, to some Buddhists, they are thoroughgoing non-theists. Um, sure. So everything's imp- impermanent. Uh, everything's in a state of flux. Nothing lasts forever. Nothing um, gold can stay, as Robert Frost said. 
The second one is unsatisfactoriness, uh, and it, it's not hard to see how that follows. Uh, joy, just happiness, just like anything else, is going to be temporary. Mm-hmm. It's going to be impermanent. Um, and so there, uh, the the sometimes people view, you know, the the first doctrine of Buddhism: life is suffering, and and so uh, dukkha. Yes, dukkha. We'll get to dukkha in a moment. And and they view it as, oh, well, the, you know, nothing can be happy in this life. And that's not really the case. No. Uh, they talk uh, – the Buddha acknowledges there are all sorts of sources of happiness for our lives, but but none of them – none of them are stable or enduring. No ultimate happiness. Right. Yeah. So that's unsatisfactoriness. Um, the final of the three insights, which is the more difficult one to explain, is anatta, no soul. Now, if everything is impermanent, then there can't be any stable or enduring self or soul. Right. This is really a, a rejection of the concept of Atman. Atman was this idea that there was this eternal soul, of course, the unchanging ego that somehow stands apart from the phenomenal world, from existence as, as we see it. That piece of the ultimate that is our true self. Yes. And the, the Buddha rejects this. This is probably the most radical doctrine of Buddhism. Uh, sometimes it's called no self yeah. and sometimes translated as not self in the sense that uh, the, the Buddha begins his inquiry into the self by trying to look for it through introspection, through meditation. Yeah. And he finds that everything that he can detect, that he watches, he, he only sees experiences. He only sees ideas. Mm-hmm. Um, it's actually it's almost deterministic. Yeah, well, we'll get to that yeah. in just a second too. But more than one person has pointed out that it's remarkably similar to David Hume. Uh, David Hume's yeah. uh, denial of the self. Wow. I, I don't think there's any connection between him and Buddhism, but he made the same argument. Had Buddha read Hume? Because <laughs> I'm suspicious. Um, but but Hume, you know, being a, being an empiricist, a very strict empiricist, said, "Well, okay, can we test this idea of a, a self?" And he says, "If you watch your own experience, you 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 see feelings, you see thoughts, mm-hmm. um, but but you don't see this this permanent self that's having them." And so he he was skeptical as to the kind of self that Thomas Reed and others believed in at the time, whether or not that was that really existed. And he had the idea that it was a bundle, what we call the self. Our experience of a self is really just all all these mental functionings that are going on yeah. um, that that are tied together through memory, which gives it a kind of a coherent narrative. Mm-hmm. Um, there's there's no soul or driver inside of the head. The homunculus. Yeah, homunculus. Homunculus. Yep. The Buddha had a similar approach. In one of the suttas, the Buddha says that quote that there is no arising of consciousness without certain conditions. Uh, and then he speaks of the five aggregates, mm-hmm. uh, these these components that come together to give us a sense of self, those being, uh, in his view, matter, sensation, perception, mental formations, and consciousness. Uh, that's pretty enlightened for a guy who's working, what, five in 500 years BCE. Yeah, it's it's a very psychological approach to to looking at the mind rather than a than a, a spiritual one. In fact, he says, "Were a man to say, I shall show the coming and the going and the passing away, the arising, the growth, the increase, or the development of consciousness apart from matter, apart from sensation, perception, or mental formations, he would be speaking of something that does not exist." Hmm. 
And so as the scholar here, Walpola Raula, tries to make the point over and over again that that Buddhism, again, does not acknowledge some sort of spirit uh, as opposed to matter. The the self can only exist as a collection of these of these aggregates, and once they dissolve, so will the self. So that's why it's sometimes translated by people not self. Mm-hmm. Uh, there is this idea of a self, uh, but it's a, a self as a mental formation. It, mm-hmm. This is an idea that we use to conceptualize what is really a, a multitude of things that are acting in concert. Sure. Um, the problem then, from the Buddhist point of view, is that. This idea then of the self, though, is it's very illusory. It, beca- it can become misleading. Hmm. We're changing all the time. But you look back to yourself as a child and recognize yourself as the same person. Yes. You, you know, you see the, the continuity there. Well, from that, it's, it's very easy then to fall into this trap of thinking of the self as something that, that does persist throughout all this change and therefore might be, might be eternal, might persist beyond your death. Right might be your truest self or your ultimate reality. This is the kind of thinking that leads to soul theory. Right. Yeah. And so that's that's part of the rejection. No, no, your I, your sense of self is just like anything else. It is impermanent. It, it will pass away too. To sum up the story so far, we don't have a soul. We're just our bodies, our thoughts, and everything else. The gods aren't of any importance. They're, they're no help to us. Uh, they are in the exact same predicament we are. Uh, they're bound by the same impersonal laws of the cosmos as well. So if we are to ever find peace in this life, we need to find it for ourselves, mm-hmm. which is another aspect we didn't talk much about. But the, the Buddha doesn't claim in the early Buddhist texts he's not a savior or anything. Right. Uh, he's just showing you what you need to do to earn it for yourself. He says you need to be a refuge to yourself. In fact, he's about the only founder of a religion <clears> – <throat> who doesn't claim either to be divine or to have divine inspiration. Right. So uh, if we're ever going to find peace in this life, it's up to us. Uh, We need to find it for ourselves. Uh, It's not going to come through trusting some authority. True wisdom is only gained by careful examination and testing our ideas uh, by experience. You're trying to make me into a Buddhist here, aren't you? Sounds... Sounds Remarkably like, the humanist like secular humanism. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. Luckily, I know what's coming up in episode yeah. 74. <laughs> I ain't buying what you're selling just yet. That's right. I'm intentionally putting the best side of Buddhism forth. Yeah. We will be coming back to this and showing uh, a lot of the nonsense that's in there, too. Right, right. And someone who's no stranger to that is Stephen Batchelor. Stephen Batchelor was ordained as a monk in the Tibetan Buddhist tradition. He met the Dalai Lama in India and was trained in India by monks within the Dalai Lama's inner circle. In fact, he became one of the foremost translators of Tibetan texts into English. Wow. As he progressed through Buddhism, Mm -hmm. he became very skeptical, especially of notions like reincarnation and karma. Yes. Confession of a Buddhist atheist is his story. It begins with him as a kind of a rebellious teenager, Living in the UK, smoking hash, doing acid, going to Pink Floyd concerts, and on his kind of quest for personal fulfillment, he ends up hiking his way into India. Hmm. It's a good way to get there. Where he eventually meets the Dalai Lama. I had a chance to talk to Stephen Batchelor, and I began by asking him what initially interested him in Buddhism. (laughs) 
The book outlines the conditions under which I was brought up, my family background, which were not religious, mm-hmm. and arguably because I had not really had a religious upbringing or education, I did feel that there was something lacking mm-hmm. in my life. Um, I don't think I had any idea as to what it was that was missing, but I did feel a kind of visceral attraction, particularly to Eastern religions. Now, I'm fully aware in retrospect now that much of that was uh, simply buying into what the counterculture of the 1960s presented as hip and cool and trendy, namely, you know, Hinduism and Buddhism and Taoism and so on. Uh, But at the same time, I I don't think it was just, for me, a, a superficial interest, but one that obviously had got hold of me in a way that I was willing to put aside a lot of what my peers would have considered to be you know, rather important, namely getting a higher education, qualifications, career, family, all those things. And I had no hesitation really to plunge into the world of Tibetan Buddhism. Of course, I did uh, at the time find myself really rather uh, hypnotized, uh, fascinated by this world of ancient Tibet that suddenly was there in North India. And it took me a long time, I think, to somehow let go of the idealizations I had had of it. In some ways, I was following the movement of many young people at that period who had become disillusioned with the West. Um, remember, this was the time of the Vietnam War. Uh, This was a time when there was a very strong counterculture in which anything was really felt to be possible, that a new beginning of human uh, being could somehow be realized. Now, I think that was all very idealistic, but it nonetheless gave uh, a sort of confidence uh, that one could uh, do something radically different from what one's family, parents, culture expected and make a go of it. And so that was the sort of a cultural environment that uh, gave me the permission, one might say, to explore things that were really outside of mainstream Western culture. Now, allied to that, of course, was my own personal yearning for something that I couldn't quite name. But that something, I think, was really uh, the experience of my life as really a big question. Mm-hmm. And I was not at all taken with the answers to the such questions that traditional Western religions give. Uh, Christianity, I found really rather unappealing, uh, not particularly persuasive or convincing. And the Christians I met did not really um, appeal to me as, uh, as exemplars of what a human life could be. Uh, I, I sensed their own confusion, their own doubts, perhaps. And the East, particularly Buddhism in my case, was something that stood as a kind of beacon of light in this darkness, to use a rather cliched expression. And I went to it really rather uncritically and openly and plunged right in. Now, the Dalai Lama in particular, but also many of the Tibetans who were living in his community in India in the early 1970s, were also wonderful examples of human beings. Mm -hmm. And I think it was that humanity uh, that really appealed to me. It was also the fact that these were men and women who had just been evicted, or they had fled, let's say, 
from their homeland, Tibet, and had set up in one of the poorest countries in the world, India, as refugees. And yet they did not seem to be depressed by this uh, rather traumatic uh, disjunction in their own lives. They seemed to radiate a kind of a, a warmth and a, and, and, and a brightness and, and a clarity of mind and, and openness to others that I found very impressive. Uh, particularly perhaps coming from people in such a, an impoverished situation. Mm -hmm. So all of those factors together, and there's no doubt others as well. I suspect perhaps I might have been looking for a father figure since I grew up without a father, by and large. So all of those factors together propelled me into my encounter with Buddhism. And once I, as it were, connected with the Buddhist tradition, um, I've never let go of that. And that has become my life. And much of what I recount in this book is, in fact, my own story as to how that initial love affair, uh, like many love affairs, uh, once you get to live with the person you are romantically uh, fa fascinated by, you realize that that person is a lot more complicated. <laughs> and you have to somehow negotiate a different kind of relationship. And I suppose my earliest encounters with Buddhism were largely those of a kind of a, a romance, whereas my longer-term involvement, which is now nearly the last 40 years, has been more about a marriage and sometimes a rather rocky and stormy marriage um, that um, I'm still in. And some people say, well, why don't you divorce? But no, I'm going to stick with it, I think. One of the most powerful parts of the book uh, for me to push that metaphor is Watching how you describe what was going on in, in your mind and in your life at the time that the, that honeymoon phase of the romance mm -hmm. started to come to an end. As, as you began to become more critical in your reflections on Buddhist doctrines. I was three years in India from 1972 to 75, in other words, until I was 20, 23 years old. Um, then I went to Switzerland. And my teacher, Geshe Rabton, was, uh, again, a fairly fairly close to the Dalai Lama in that inner circle of the Gelugpa Church. He was appointed abbot of the refugee Tibetan refugee monastery in Switzerland. And I went with him with a few other Westerners, specifically in order to train in Buddhist logic and um, dialectics. And so the... In, in a strange way, it wasn't so much that I had a, a Western scientific rational mind that led me to start uh, querying some of these doctrines. But actually, I was encouraged to query them by the Tibetan tradition itself, hmm. that I was attracted. And this is perhaps, again, very attractive to a Western mind to not uh, take on trust simply what the Buddhist teachings say, but rather to subject them to a rational critical analysis in which we were taught. We, we, we were taught to subject these ideas to um, the, the rigor of reason to make sure that they were, or to see, to try to prove that they were somehow internally con consistent. But also that opened up a whole new way of considering things that until then I'd kind of been uh, led to believe should be simply taken on trust. And in particular, I remember very clearly Geshe Rabton telling us this. He said, well, look, if you follow this kind of intellectual analysis of the text, this is the only way that you can arrive at certainty and conviction about doctrines such as reincarnation and 
the law of karmic cause and effect and so on. And I believed that. I, I, I was very attracted to that approach. But once um, we that got underway, once we were given these tools of critical analysis, it soon became quite apparent that a lot of these basic doctrines were not really um, reasonable. They were not, uh, like the doctrine of reincarnation, was not something that the Tibetan Buddhist proofs really established at all. In fact, all of those so-called proofs did was raise a whole bunch more even more difficult questions like the nature of mind and consciousness and so on. And so I think my doubts were fed both by the approach that I was being taught by the Tibetan lamas, but also, of course, um, as a Westerner, and particularly once I left India and got back into Western culture, in particular I was living in Switzerland and Germany, I did begin to read more widely in Western philosophy in uh, Christian theology, uh, I started doing uh, psychoanalysis, things like that. And all of that really, I suppose, brought to the fore once more my identity as uh, a person of the European Enlightenment who had not been raised as a Buddhist. And I think this whole process that I, well, this whole struggle, let's say, that I got myself caught up in was really uh, a struggle for um, clarity and um, let's say conviction, and yet at the same time, an unwillingness to uh, fudge that, an unwillingness to say, well, actually, we can't prove this by reasoning alone. We have to trust that the Buddha was enlightened and he wouldn't have told us anything that was false and, and, and arguments of that nature, which frankly are not at all convincing. So that's pretty much where I found myself stuck. And it became quite apparent that Although some you know, considerable emphasis was given to rational inquiry, it was quite clear that if the rational inquiry didn't deliver, then you had to fall back on faith. And most of the things I had difficulties with, reincarnation, etc., were clearly therefore revealed as a, a faith doctrines rather than anything else. So then I was really in a difficult situation because um, as I was a monk uh, of a particular Tibetan Buddhist order, um, I was expected as a Jesuit would be expected or as someone training in in an Islamic seminary would be expected to actually stand up for the views and beliefs that my position in the community uh, called for. And I found I couldn't. I found that I was more and more troubled by a certain sense of being hypocritical. In other words, living the life as a Tibetan Buddhist monk and being supported by the generosity of of, of our our, uh, lay supporters uh, to live that life. And yet many of the key doctrines I could not, in my heart of hearts, actually accept any longer. And that was a crisis, a crisis of faith, if you wish. Struggling with this crisis of faith, you turned to the Pali Canon to investigate some of the earliest Buddhist texts in more and more detail. And this is where we start getting your your look at what did the historical Buddha teach? If there if there was a historical Buddha, and I, I know you believe there was, what did he teach and how does it match up with the way Buddhism is is taught today? There's some very fascinating things you talk about. One, one was almost an anti-metaphysical posture in many of the Pali texts, where he doesn't seem to be concerned with many of the the big questions that that religion is interested in. 
Yes, that's absolutely right. I mean, in some, from a Tibetan Buddhist point of view, perhaps from a point of view of many Buddhists in the West today, my my approach to Buddhism has kind of gone backwards. I started with what are presented as being the highest teachings of the Buddha, um, as found in the Tibetan, the Zen, and other traditions. And yet, I found myself going back again and again to the earliest sources of uh, that we have. Uh, namely those found in the Pali Canon and in some other locations. But the Pali Canon is probably the most complete and most available uh, set of early doctrines. And the more that I went back into those early texts, the more that I found that much of what I was being taught, let's say in the Tibetan tradition, was in, in quite clear contradiction to what seemed to be the spirit of the early teachings. Um, as you mentioned, the Buddha makes it very clear, and this is not just one passage in some obscure text somewhere, but is a, a, a motif, it's a light motif that runs throughout the entire canon itself, and that is namely that what the Buddha is teaching is not actually at all concerned with getting answers to metaphysical questions. In other words, the sorts of questions that religions traditionally ask. And the ones the Buddha lists are, does the universe have a beginning? Does it have an end? Is it finite? Is it infinite? Are mind and the body one? Or are mind and the body different? Does one exist after death? Or does one not exist after death? And the Buddha's response to all of that was simply, that's irrelevant. It doesn't matter. It's got nothing to do with what actually I'm concerned with. The Buddha is concerned uh, with a kind of therapeutic um, uh, research into one's own experience, a very hard-headed look at the suffering and the anxiety and the various pains of human life, and then embarking on a path, in other words, a set of practices, of exercises, a set of ethical and moral ideas that are used, as it were, to come to terms with this experience of human suffering and find a way of life whereby one can transcend being stuck in the habits of mind that are so habitually and almost instinctively built into our reactions to pain. Namely, I want to get rid of it, or I want to be happy, I want to get this, I want to get that, running around like a hamster wheel, um, but actually not getting anywhere. Heidegger argues in Being in Time that um, much of what our, um, we spend much of our lives are driven in their urgency by the refusal to acknowledge our own mortality. Hmm. And it's a, he, he talks of human life as, as a kind of a flight from death. And I think the Buddha says something very similar. I mean, the, the, the Buddha's emphasis on birth, sickness, aging, death, and that's really where you begin. You begin the whole Buddhist practice, um, at least in my understanding of the first sermon, by focusing in, in a very um, a direct and uncompromising way onto the facts of your existence, hmm. to really let those, uh, the, those ideas sink in, not just to sort of, you know, just say, oh, yeah, that's right, but really to become, to internalize a consciousness of mortality and death. I think the emphasis the on impermanence is the same. Hmm. And, and the purpose of that is to kind of realign or restructure one's existential perspective on who you are. So instead of being someone who unconsciously is, is, is fleeing death and seeking to establish uh, some sort of protection, whether it be a belief or whether it be wealth, whatever it is, uh, to actually turn that whole system of behavior on its head and start 
by acknowledging death, acknowledging impermanence, and then asking yourself, then how do I live from that perspective? How do I actually pursue a human life, aware that every moment I might die? Now, paradoxically, I think it's only in such a condition that you're really able to live from the core of your own uh, person as a, a mortal human with no expectations of what happens next. And that, I think, for me, is the greatest source of life itself. Whereas I think whenever your actions are premised on an implicit or an explicit denial of death, your life is thereby diminished that much more and you are restricted uh, in what you could be or become by um, this rather fantastical idea that there is some way out of death. And so his critique of, say, attachment and hatred and such things as this is not uh, in order that we can attain some nirvana um, outside of our experience here and now, but rather that by being less bound to these neuroses and attachments and fears, um, we actually find a possibility of living in this world in a totally different way. Mm. So the Buddha's teaching, at least in these early texts, is, is, is profoundly pragmatic. It has to do with, with, with doing something rather than believing in something. It has to do with um, uh, focusing one's attention on the, on the here and now. In other words, on the phenomenal world, the world as it appears to us, without any position or view about another reality that might follow death or an, a deeper reality, a kind of absolute reality that lies at the very core of one's experience but is somehow veiled over in some way. And this was very refreshing to me. Not only was it refreshing in terms of the other Buddhist teachings I had been exposed to, but it was also very refreshing in that it seemed to fit really rather well with a kind of European post-enlightenment rationalism and pragmatism. And this is what um, I discovered more and more the, the more I went into these texts, uh, and the more also that I uh, found out about who this person, the Buddha, might have been, uh, rather than a kind of a almost a godlike figure, we discover in these early texts that the Buddha was very much involved in his world. He was not disinterested in the world around him, and he had to work within the conditions of his time, the social conditions, the political conditions, the economic conditions. It's, it's, it's very clear that here was a man who was very engaged with his world, and he was seeking to um, articulate in the context of those times a way of life that would uh, allow human beings to flourish. So that's the end of our first part of the interview with Stephen Batchelor. And I want to build on this idea uh, that, that he kind of teased at the end about human flourishing. What, what, is, what is the Buddhist concept of human flourishing? So we are going to now go through a, a very brief, very concise sketch of the Four Noble Truths. We are going to be giving a highly secularized version of it. Right. People who are familiar with Buddhism will notice that doctrines like karma and reincarnation are conspicuously absent. Mm. And once again, we will be covering those in detail in the third part of our series. Now, the Four Noble Truths 
first of all, as, as Bachelor would be quick to point out, they're, they're not to be seen just as a set of doctrines. It's not like the Four Noble Truths in the capital T sense of the word. It's not the Ten Commandments. Right. These are supposed to be lived in your personal life or discovered through experience. Buddhism always has this distinction between the intellectual understanding of a doctrine on one hand Mm-hmm. And a personal experiential understanding of something in your in your life, and it always favors the latter. Having said that, let's let's go into these these doctrines, the four noble truths. The first truth is the truth of dukkha. Dukkha. I stepped in dukkha. <laughs> Great word. It is. Sounds kind of like dookie. Yeah, it, absolutely. And it kind of it. it almost seems like a perfect. Uh, you don't need to translate it. <laughs> Life is dukkha. It, it's almost better not to leave it translated because it, it, confusions can come out of that because it's often translated life is suffering. Right. Um, dukkha means a lot more than suffering though. kind of means even something more like stress, mm-hmm. I've heard teachers say. Huh? Buddhism begins with recognizing human suffering and the type of suffering that dukkha entails, you can, you can break down into three parts. Uh, one is just completely ordinary everyday suffering. So like you get sick. You grow old. Right. You know, you're going to die. The stuff that we would recognize as right. suffering. Right. Going to the dentist. Yeah. Uh, just, just ordinary pain is the first part of dukkha. The, the second, though, is, is dukkha that is caused by change. So because everything is impermanent, we suffer uh, because of that. So, for example, you have all these great friends, you know, uh, that you really enjoy. They bring a lot of happiness to your life and – Maybe you don't you don't get along with them so much anymore, or you have to move away, uh, right. you know, for some reason, and you're not going to be with them together anymore. That that change can cause suffering in your life, or you buy a, a you know a new car or a new house or something. At first, it's it's always so exciting and thrilling and new, and eventually starts to fall apart. Yeah, it grows old, or it gets stolen, or something else like that. And that thing that was the source of joy has changed now. And you are going to suffer because of that. So impermanence is related to suffering. The third type of dukkha is a bit more complicated. In fact, it's it's very much weighed down by ideas of karma and reincarnation. So we're not going to go into it too much. Mm-hmm. It's suffering that comes from conditioned states of mind. So this is the suffering that is uh, has to do with how our sense of self uh, actually contributes to a bulk of our suffering. Maybe to give a, a window into how that works, it'd be best to just move on into to, to the second noble truth, which is the cause of dukkha, the cause of suffering. The cause of suffering is the idea of craving or clinging to things that are inherently impermanent. So, if you were, for example, with greed, if if you're trying to uh, if you're trying to gain happiness by gaining possessions, right, accumulating wealth, you're not going to be satisfied. Because you're going to lose it. Yeah, you're, you're going to keep on. It comes and goes. Exactly. You know, you, you'll buy the car, you'll buy the boat, and you're going to find none of these things ultimately are going to satisfy you. Uh, you're working from a false premise, believing that they could in the first place. Well, does this even connect with um, like interpersonal relationships? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, you get married and you're in love until the day your partner dies. That still causes suffering. Having that connection, if you try to cling to that – reject the idea that this will end someday with death or right. what have you, 
that causes suffering. It, a perfect perfect example. So so you don't even always have to think of it as greed in the in the most moral morally loaded sense of the term. Even something simple like that. You could even say the infatuation, you know? Sure. You know, that initial heady phase of falling in love. Mm -hmm. What happens when that naturally goes away? What happens if you try to hold on to that and keep that no matter what? You know, you're going to get yourself in trouble. There's going to be some dukkha. It's it's the craving for these things and the clinging to things that are not going to last Mm -hmm. that really fuels, fuels this suffering. It's the illusion that we could somehow order all the events of our life to be just perfect so that we could be absolutely fulfilled. It's, it's the illusory right. part of that or the delusion, as they would say, that, that is really driving this. The third noble truth is the idea that there is a way out of this predicament. And the, the Buddhist way out of kind of in a, in a nutshell, really, is dispelling that illusion. So here's kind of the, the idea. If you are suffering... You can say, I am suffering, and you can identify with that suffering, and then you can worry and obsess about it and try to put yourself as far away from that feeling, that negative feeling as possible, uh, which is pointless, or you can see it for what it is. And the idea is that if you see it for what it is, suffering is just a temporary feeling. It arises from some condition, it'll persist for a while, and then it will just on its own, will naturally fade away. Mm -hmm. It's impermanent. Don't become attached to it. You don't have to say, oh, oh God, I'm this miserable person. It's awful. Uh, You say, there is suffering present. You don't want to attach yourself to suffering any more than anything else. Right. right? Because it's also impermanent. By clinging to it, using their language, Mm -hmm. you are are prolonging it. And likewise, I mean, it goes the same way for joy. Uh, similarly, if something delightful happens in your life, uh, oh my God, double rainbow, or something <laughs> like that, you know, something wonderful happens in your life, you could get ecstatic about it, uh, and you could try to hang on to it for as long as it would possibly last, or you could treat it like a drug and chase the high mm-hmm. and do whatever you can over and over again to, to recreate that experience when it drops off, or... Again, you could just recognize it for what it is. Here is a a momentarily uh, a happy feeling. Enjoy it in the moment that it's there. Mm. Appreciate it for what it is, and then you know don't try to don't try to extend that out. Just let let life move let on the to the next course thing. Of things, yeah, okay. So you can see here that that the Buddha's kind of solution to this problem it's not so much changing the facts of this world or trying to escape to some sort of heaven where everything's nice and perfect anyways. The idea is is that you are changing your attitude or your disposition towards the things that happen naturally. It's a shift in your perspective. Uh, Grant me the... The serenity to accept those things I cannot change. change and change the things I cannot accept. However, that goes. Yeah, I mean, I don't want to, I don't yeah. want to reduce it down to a Hallmark card, but you, you are right. I mean, there's something people will recognize in Buddhism, and I think they're right to do so. There's something kind of stoic about this. Yeah, fans of Spinoza, I think, are naturally attracted to this hmm. uh, because Spinoza has similar ideas that that you're dis you're discontent because you're fighting against reality. I'll save my criticisms till episode 74. Oh, I, you know, I have my doubts too uh-huh. about to what, what degree this, this would actually be true. But we'll get there. We'll get there.
I think you can see merit in the approach. The the oh, approach certainly. is yeah. is working with your own consciousness, working with your own attitude to try to diminish your suffering in this world right. in, instead of instead of pushing that to some future realm in the beyond. Yes. Oh, happiness will come when I'm in heaven and everything's perfect. Mm-hmm. Now, I mean, we should mention that this idea of nirvana is that there is some sort of realm that is completely right. free from suffering. Right. And that's true, and that's part of the Buddhist worldview. But what's important to emphasize is that the uh, even after the Buddha's supposed enlightenment, mm-hmm. he is supposed to be free from suffering in in this actual life. He doesn't have to go on to another realm. The idea is, and in fact, he he gets sick, he gets old. Right. He has all, you know, he, he has many of his... poisoning or something? Uh, yes. Yeah, I, I, I think so. Yeah. You know, he has many disappointments, I guess you could say, happen in his life. So nothing has changed about his human condition. The idea is that while he's having this pain, he's not suffering from it. Ah. Be- and it's because he has seen through uh, a lot of a lot of the illusions that we attach to to our circumstances. Sure, sure. And then the fourth noble truth, of course, is this idea of the path, the noble eightfold path, which is supposed to be a set of philosophical beliefs, ethical guidelines, and then a set of mental practices, mental disciplines that are supposed to help somebody to achieve this attitude towards life or this this disposition towards things. Mm-hmm. I think the stronger claim we can make on this show is is that there are many aspects of early Buddhism that really can fit quite well with a naturalistic worldview. Yes. The, the the question that's which keeps me studying Buddhism is this question: his claims about suffering and how we should live. Is there any merit to those? You know, I'm I'm much more skeptical, especially of the strong claim that the Buddhists tend to believe, like you could completely eradicate it, which I don't believe at all. Mm-hmm. Um, but is there any truth to any of this? And that's the question we're going to ask next time: Can we find any empirical support for the Buddha's attitudes towards suffering? Okay, so look for that uh, coming down the feed in the coming weeks. Uh, But we're going to end today with a really kind of a heartbreaking shit list entry here. This made me really sad. It upset me too. I think, you know, I I don't know how the... Our listeners at large will respond to it, but I I was personally bothered by this. I'm actually interested in hearing how our listeners respond to this on our shit list this week. CFI, the Center for Inquiry. Yeah, and uh, if you've listened to this show for any length of time, you know that uh, all of all of us, uh, even Luke, who is absent today, we're mm-hmm. all work with CFI in some sort of a way. Dave, yeah. Dave worked with the campus group. My wife is the assistant director of our local branch here. I share an office with them. Yep. We love CFI. Uh, Luke's on their advisory board. Mm-hmm. We all have ties to this group. We're, we're big fans of CFI, but recently – They issued a press release about the so-called Ground Zero Mosque. Mm -hmm. The one thing that I think is getting completely underreported is that it's not a mosque. Right. It's a cultural center. It's a cultural center, but it's not a mosque. It's a a 13-story building. used to be a Burlington coat factory, Mm -hmm. I believe. And it's uh, going to be built a couple of blocks away from where the Twin Towers once stood. Uh, two blocks away. The building where it's going was actually struck by debris on uh, September 11th. Many people are arguing that this is too close to ground zero, um, that it's somehow being seen as a 
a celebratory yeah right they're showing their victory over america by planting this mosque which is not at all the case in fact the imam from this cultural center was tapped by president bush and continued through president obama as an ambassador from hmm. the u.s to the muslim world this is the kind of muslim we want on our side not the kind of muslim that we want to alienate right by throwing up a stink because they want to build a cultural center. And there's a lot of people up in arms, including um, survivors and uh, family members of survivors of the attacks on 9-11 who are very upset about this. Not all of them because as we all know or should know, there were Muslims killed on 9-11 as well. <laughs> Innocent really? Muslims working in the Twin Towers. Really? Yeah. Oh my god. I know. It, it, it boggles the mind, doesn't it? So – the controversy is about it being built so close to ground zero. CFI issued an initial press release, which, by the way, has been totally pulled from the interwebs. Um, yeah, they were embarrassed by the reaction to it. Yeah. And, uh, and it's dropped down the memory hole now. Yes. In fact, we only have half of a copy of it. <laughs> right. Because I mean, we weren't smart enough to save it. When I it posted it as soon as I read it. it as, actually, as soon as I read the headline, I thought, oh, dear. Uh, the headline was, the Center for Inquiry urges that ground zero be kept religion free. This is two blocks away. And there are already, oh, let's say, churches, temples, porno Porn theaters, yeah, yeah. all of this within the the same radius around ground zero. How far out do you need to be for right, it to be right, okay? Right, before people start not getting offended. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I, mean, I mean, what is – and the fact – CFI says, you know, we support religious freedom. We're saying that the government should not be able to stop them. And, of course, the government can't stop them. Because there's no legal basis There's no for legal it. basis. Now, this is coming from the original later retracted statement by CFI. Uh, it says, quote, The Center for Inquiry is troubled by the rhetoric of some of those protesting the proposed Islamic religious center and mosque near Ground Zero. And it especially deplores the growing politicization of the dispute. Hey, I was great. I was like, good for them. I'm Please. glad they're talking about how ridiculous this yes, is. Yes, but and then they continue. CFI also holds that the focus of the protests is too narrow. It would be inappropriate to build any, their emphasis, not mine, new house of worship in the area immediately around Ground Zero, not just mosques. Quote, the 9-11 tax were an example of faith-based terrorism and an institution that privileges faith above reason is an affront to those who were killed and injured in those attacks, unquote, observes Ron A. Lindsay, president and CEO of CFI. And in their retraction, they emphasize like, look, we're not saying that uh, they don't politically have the right uh, to do this. We're just saying we, we don't we, like any religious building. We protect their right to yeah. uh, uh, to build these things. This is part of their religious freedom and we're affirming that. But I was like, well, th then why? Yeah. This, this seems – this comment, OK, if your view is, well, then wouldn't it be better if we didn't build institutions of, of faith? That seems to me like something more appropriate for Ron Lindsay's blog, like yeah. just as amusing. Yeah. Not, a, not a national press release where you're throwing gasoline on a conflict that's already – And the terrifying thing to me is that statement that, that we're not for any new religious buildings being built is almost exactly what the American Family Association said. 
they had a press release that said there should be no more mosques built in the U.S. We yeah. should not allow any more mosques to be built because they're terrorist factories. Yeah. And the, and the fact that, that CFI is offering a statement that echoes a similar sentiment to right. the American Family Association. It's very disappointing. Yeah. You know what, what CFI could have done to show that they really do support freedom of religion yeah. and everything? This would have been a great opportunity to point out the hypocrisy of the ACLJ. Yes. And the other, AFA. Yeah. The, I mean – And other Christian legal groups yeah. who claim that freedom of religion is under fire nowadays yeah. but then are willing to use the law to fight against religious freedom as they were doing. They were searching around for any pretext – in which to close yep. this down. It would have been great for CFI to say, hey, look, we're not know, in... it's the secularists that are upholding religious yeah, freedom here. Yes. Uh, and you, the ones who supposedly want, want more religion in society, are the ones who are fighting against it when it doesn't follow your own point of view. But they missed that golden opportunity yep. and really made asses of themselves, quite frankly, yeah. uh, when they could have taken the higher ground. Opposing it, saying that this area around Ground Zero is somehow sacred and should be kept religion-free is absurd. And I think it's offensive to the victims, many of whom were religious. Right. Now, the fact that they issued a, frankly, kind of weak correction to their statement where they said – Again, we're not saying they can't build it. We're just saying we don't like – They said mostly what they did before, only they really, really emphasized – religious freedom and everything else like that and yes. then – and really showed their original press release to be what it was, just this this you know rather pointless comment at the end like, oh, wouldn't it be great though if, if everybody was reasonable and, and didn't build institutions that promoted faith? And the other thing that bugs me about this is this press release came out, I don't know, after a month after people have been talking about this thing. They had plenty of time to formulate – a good press release, and instead it comes off as kind of a knee jerk. Yeah, it does. we didn't think about it. I mean, well, it's been in the news for a month, and the retraction too, because you, yeah. you know exactly what happened is people like you and me emailed mm -hmm. them uh, and said, "What the hell are you guys doing?" Yep. And you know, somebody, Ron Lindsay or somebody up there, you know, realized, "Oh shit, flew flew our, our, our mouths off when right. they shouldn't." And uh, but. CFI released it, and um, it hurts. I guess in this instance, I'm more ACLU than CFI, but uh, <laughs> maybe that's just me. So on that uh, dour note this week, uh, we're going to end it there. We'll be back soon with more Buddhism. In the meantime, uh, send your questions, comments, challenges, complaints about Buddhism to doubtcast at gmail.com. Join the discussion at doubtcast.forummotion.net. It's a great way to connect with other listeners uh, from the show. Um, a lot of lively discussion going on there. Oh, and by the way, thank you so much for the donations we received. Um, we, we have a donate uh, button on the page now, and it's I think this is the first time we've recorded since we put since that up there. there. Yeah. And, uh, or announced it, rather. Uh, and wow. Yeah. <laughs> People really came through. Um, so thank you so much to everyone who's uh, decided to support this this podcast financially. Um, it really, truly, sincerely means a lot to us. There's there's another great way to support us too, and uh, that is write a review on iTunes. Yep. Write a review on um, – well, what's the Microsoft one? Um, no one knows. 
No, no one knows. Okay, everyone uses iTunes. Uh, <laughs> whatever it is, if you're listening to us on that, yeah, whatever pod cla- whatever <laughs> podcast directory you found us through, yeah, um, you that, keep that be- beating means me- a lot too. You keep beating me to the punch on these, and of course, uh, beyond just writing a review, uh, one of the best things you can do is just to share the show with someone else. Yep. Um, Word of mouth is still our our best way of uh, that people find out about us. Absolutely. So thanks for listening. Thanks for your support in whatever way it is that you're supporting us. We greatly appreciate it. And that's all for this week. We'll be back next time with more of Reasonable Doubts, your skeptical guide to religion. To catch up on past Reasonable Doubts episodes or to email your questions or comments, check out www.doubtcast.org. Reasonable Doubts is a production of WPRR Reality Radio. You can find out more about Reality Radio at publicrealityradio.org. Reasonable Doubts theme music is performed by Love Fossil and used with permission.